Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, uh, go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, we're going to be in, the, in verses 10 to 12, coming back to a passage we looked at in, in depth last week. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, let me go ahead and tell you that there are Bibles for you uh, at the, the middle of each aisle. You can flag somebody down, they'll pass them over to you if you need one. Um, if you don't own a Bible, take that one. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it and to talk to you about what you read there. Isaiah 53 uh, should be, if you're not familiar with the Bible, there's a table of contents at the front that can direct you to, to, to where this passage is found. The claim that Jesus came back to life after he was really dead, that this happened in real time in history, it's not something that you read about in a novel or watch on a mo- in a movie. The, the, the fact that it happened in history, in a body of flesh and blood, that claim is at the heart of Christianity. We read it earlier. Paul says, if it's not true, we're all foolish. We're all pitiful. Our whole religion stands on it. And every Easter, we focus on the resurrection. Every Easter, we come here to sort of charge our batteries. Not because we want to only think about the resurrection once a year. Unfortunately, I feel like we fall into that trap too much. That's not the point of Easter. The point is, to charge up our batteries so that we, we live in and through and for the resurrection of Jesus all year long. And every year, I end up wishing that I had at least two to three times what I normally have to talk about the resurrection. And the reason is that, that so much of what's important about the resurrection hinges on two complicated and really different questions. Two questions that you really can't address well in three sermons, much less one. Did it really happen? In history, did Jesus actually die and then come back? Is that true? And if it's true, what makes it important? What does it mean? I feel like as much as I've I've tried and, and wanted to get at both of those questions, every time I preach on the resurrection, it just doesn't work. It's not good for you guys. It's not good for me. It's not good for anybody. You kind of have to choose your poison and go after one of them. And even when you go after one of them, you go after just one little sliver of one of them. And this morning, the sliver I'm going for, partly because it, it, it's, it's so present in a passage that we were in last week in Isaiah 53, is, is that second question. If Jesus is alive, sort of assuming for the moment that he is, what's the significance of it? What does it change? What does it say to us and mean for us? Now, I'm focusing on that one because of Isaiah 53 and because I think that I and probably some of you don't really have a good sense of why the resurrection needed to happen. I feel like, especially we evangelicals, are so focused on Jesus' death, which is great, um, that, we, that we sometimes don't realize why he needed to rise again. Like he, he could do everything he needed to do for us by dying, right? Taking our sin. So, so what's, what's to celebrate with the resurrection? Good Friday makes sense, and the resurrection Sunday doesn't make as much sense to us sometimes. And, um, today we're going to attack that. We're going to try to make it more clear why you should be celebrating the resurrection, how his death actually isn't good news unless he's living again. But before I get into it, in case you came here wanting to hear me answer that first question, did it really happen? I want to I quickly say to you, please don't check out now because I'm not going to go there. If, if, you're, if you're interested in Christianity, probing around for, to see what Christianity might offer for you or maybe skeptical of it, I know that that, that question 
it's going to be hard for you to suspend disbelief, so to speak, and just talk about what, what it means if it is true. I want to say to you, in particular before I get into it, that, that in my faith, I have found the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus to be the most convincing piece in the entire panorama that is Christian truth. So much of Christianity just doesn't subject itself to the kinds of knowledge that we're looking for. And the resurrection won't submit itself to a laboratory or to some sort of spreadsheet that tracks statistics or whatever. It's not that kind of knowledge. But the resurrection, weighed using the methods that we know anything about history at all, using the historian's methods, which as a historian I obviously feel are the, the best and most, most trustworthy of methods, <laughs> using historian's methods, the resurrection of Jesus has better support than most of what we believe about ancient history, most of what we don't even question about ancient history that's getting taught to our children in elementary school. The, re- the, re- the resurrection on the same exact terms has more evidence. And I would love the chance to talk to you about what that evidence is, to maybe put a couple things into your hands that you can read. Uh, because there, there, in the times when my faith is, is weak, and I question, like so many of us do, why I really believe it's all true, it's, it's often the resurrection that brings me back around. I think there's good reason to believe it happened. And I'd love the chance to make that case for you. So there's, there's my advertisement. Now I'm going to ask you to plug in, even if, you're, even if you'd rather hear me talk about this other question, to plug in on this second question, why it's significant. And, and even if you're not sure it really happened, I think you're going to want to hear this because the reason his death matters so much is going to introduce you to a world that you're going to want to be true even if you can't be sure that it is. You're going to want this world to be true. And it's going, to, it's going to motivate you to go and see if you can discover whether it is actually true. That's what I think. Just give me the benefit of the doubt and hang on. That's where we're headed this morning. In Isaiah 53, it's a, a passage that's a song about Jesus' death, mostly. But at the beginning of it and at the end of it, it's a song about Jesus' resurrection. That's the case I want to make for you today. Even more, I want to help you see what this text has to say about why Jesus' resurrection changes everything. Why it is the ball game for Christians. And the way I'm going to come at it, and normally I mean, the way my mind works and the way that a lot, of the, a lot of the Bible is best understood and explained is in a sort of linear step-by-step. One, step one leads to step two, leads to step three, a sort of three-course meal approach to understanding passages of Scripture. But the prophets and poetry in general in the Bible don't usually work that well. They're repetitive. They kind of go in circles sometimes. So this morning, just, just as a way of helping you conceptualize how we're going to approach this passage and, and why I'm not going through it you know, word by word all the way from beginning to end, think about our approach this morning less like eating a three-course meal and more like sucking on an everlasting gobstopper. You guys know these candies? My wife loves these things. They start out with one flavor, and you suck on it a while, and you, you suck down to an, a second flavor, and you suck on it a while, and down to another flavor, layer by layer. That's the way we're going to approach these verses. We're going to take a pass at them and, and notice something that's kind of mysterious. And then we're going to take another pass and notice a different layer of meaning. And then we're going to, we're going to take a third pass that's going to point us to this ocean of meaning that the rest of the Bible is meant to explain to us. That's how we're going to approach it this morning. Now, if you found the passage, Isaiah 53, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word to us as I read from verses 10 to 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. 
the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word. You can be seated. Here are the layers I want us to try to pry into this morning. Where the resurrection was predicted in this passage, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Where the resurrection was predicted. Why the resurrection was possible and what the resurrection promises us. Those are the three layers I want to try to expose through these verses. Starting with where the resurrection was predicted. Now, a first pass over these verses, I think it reveals pretty plainly a mysterious connection that that isn't fully explained here, but that, that can't be convincingly explained away either. The passage on the whole I've mentioned is a song about Jesus' death, and that's normally the category that we put it into. And that's why it gets read, and that's what gets talked about when it gets preached on. But at the beginning of the song, which is at the end of chapter 52, and here at the end of the song, so as the brackets to the song, we see not just language about his death, but about exaltation, about language that's that's almost kingly. It's not of shame and death, but of victory. So what's clear on a first pass is that this servant, whom we take to be Jesus because the New Testament does, it's, it's clear that this servant dies, and it's also clear that his death isn't the end. Now, let me just point you to a couple of these details to make sure this is, this is clear to you. Look at verse 10, for example. It says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, it's a euphemism for his sacrificial death. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, it's, when, it's connected to that death. It's then that he will prolong his days. When he dies, he'll prolong his days. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, in other words, out of his death, he will see and be satisfied. He will know satisfaction. It requires him to be alive, to be tasting the fruits of what he's done. Verse 12, even more clearly, I will divide him, I will divide him a portion with the strong, with the many rather, and divide the spoil with the strong. It's language of victory. It's language of, of an army that, that wins a great battle and sort of pillages the defeated army, takes their stuff home, the spoils of war. His death is war, it's battle. And therefore, because he dies, he's going to divide the spoils of victory. How does that work if he's still dead? I think what's clear about this, just even on a first cursory pass, is that we're not talking here about this servant winning honor by his death in the way that, you know, William Wallace or whatever in Braveheart wins honor. But he still dies, right? But he's honored and you name things after him and you put up monuments to him. That's not the kind of honor this servant receives. This is something else altogether. Now, the Old, the Old Testament doesn't say much about resurrection. That's why when Jesus came, one of the main controversies among the people who, who studied the law for a living was whether or not the dead would live again whether or not there would be a resurrection. You can see this in the Gospels coming up, that 
there's this fight. They try to draw Jesus into it between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The reason there was, it was possible to have a fight is that it's not crystal clear in the Old Testament about the resurrection. It's not talked about that often. But I think this has got to be one of the places that Jesus took the disciples that he met with on the Emmaus Road after his resurrection when he, when he, when he, he, he tells them from the law and the prophets why the Messiah had to die and rise again. It's one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. Uh, if you haven't read it, today would be a great day for you to get introduced to this story. In, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, there's this story about these, these disciples who are traveling on a road to a town called Emmaus, and they, they're really upset because Jesus has died. And they understood that the Messiah was supposed to change everything. They got that part. They had missed the fact that the Messiah was supposed to suffer and die. So they thought it was all over. And Jesus appears to them. They don't recognize him, but he appears to them. He's walking with them on the road to this city. And, and along the way, we're told that he opens up the Bible to them. He opens up the law and the prophets, and he explains from those Old Testament passages why the Messiah had to suffer and then rise again. I think this is one of the places he probably took them. He read them Isaiah 53, and he said, look. I think it's what Paul had in mind in 1 Corinthians 15, what we read earlier, that Christ was raised according to the Scriptures. A careful reading of the Scriptures, including this one, written 700 years before the events that happened, would lead you to believe that the Messiah, through whom the world gets remade, had to die, but he wouldn't stay dead. That's pass number one. There's another layer. I think this passage helps us see why the resurrection was possible. In other words, I think it has details in it that unlock for us the sort of logic behind why the resurrection happens. I want to point you to a few of those details. This is the heart of what I want to explain today. So, 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 so dig down with me, bear with me. I think it'll pay off. Again, we can start in verse 10. It's, it's in verse 10 that we're told, when he makes an offering for sin, he will prolong his days. There's a, there's a connection there. It's like a causal connection. One thing causes the other thing. It's only when he gives himself up for guilt that he prolongs his days. It gets even clearer in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, verse 11 really recaps the basic message of the whole chapter. It's this exchange. He's making many to be accounted righteous, and he's bearing their iniquities. He's, he's beaten and punished and ultimately killed for them. He exchanges his righteousness for their sins. And therefore, notice this is a cause again. He's drawing a conclusion. This is basic logic 101. Therefore, because he made this exchange, he divides the spoils of victory. This image for the resurrection we've been talking about. It's, a, it's caused by the fact that he bore their sins and gave them his righteousness. And then verse, the rest of verse 12 just reinforces it. He's going to have this because, again, notice this, he's, he's playing with logic here. He's going to have the spoils of victory. He's going to have his resurrection because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Here's the point. I think these verses are are meant to tell us that he's exalted after his death because his death accomplished exactly what he meant for it to accomplish. It successfully dealt with sin. It took sin out of the picture. And because sin was now out of the picture, death itself has no power. And that's a big claim. And I want to unpack it a little bit. I want, I, want to, I want to unpack why this works the way it does. An appeal to, to one of my favorite passages in the New Testament about the resurrection just really quickly. And then I want to give you an image to say exactly the same thing, but I think it might help you get a taste of it in a, little, in a, in a more memorable and, and more insightful way. So play with the logic a little bit. Hang with me. And then we're going, to, we're going to look at an image that comes straight out of Isaiah 
for why this connection between his death and then his resurrection makes sense. Why it was possible. Here we go. The place that, that helps me most in understanding how this death and resurrection connection works is, is in one of Paul's letters in Romans chapter 4, at the very end of it. You can turn there if you want. It's just one sentence or one phrase even that I'm going to use. At the very end of that chapter, it seems like Paul is referring directly to this passage, to Isaiah 53. He says that Jesus was delivered up because of our trespasses. Maybe your translation says for our trespasses. What it means is because of our trespasses. Jesus was delivered up because of our trespasses. Language straight out of Isaiah 53. And he was raised because of our justification or for our justification. Notice this parallel, this connection. Delivered for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Our sins are why he died, in other words. He died because of our sins. And our justification is why he was raised. He died to solve our problem. He was raised because our problem was solved. Died to solve our problem, was raised because our problem was solved. Let me dig down a little bit deeper. This word justification, it's a legal term. It refers to to having a right standing in the eyes of the judge or the society or whatever. You You are good as far as the powers that be are concerned. A justified person is one who owes no further debt or penalty. So say a man robs a bank and gets 20 years in federal prison. As long as that man is in prison, he's not justified. He's still bearing out his penalty. When his 20 years are up, he's then considered justified. In the eyes of the law, everything that was necessary to put him right, to make up for what had been done, had been done. And therefore, he comes up out of prison, a justified man. As long as he's in prison, not justified. Once he's out of prison, it shows he is justified. So in the terms of the Bible, it, beginning at the, very, at the very first book, when sin first enters the picture, in Genesis chapter 3, death, the Bible believe, would have us believe that death only has any power. It only came into the world as a punishment for sin. That it's a punishment that fits the crime. In sin, according to the Bible, we turn in on ourselves. We put ourselves in the place God should be, We see everything as ultimately about us. And so we turn against God and the interests of other people. And death is giving us what we want. It is complete separation from God, complete separation from other people. Death is to be absent from all good and beauty and from life itself. And it is an unbroken cycle. From Genesis 3 all through the Old Testament and all through our experience, it is the unsolvable human problem. No one, no matter how successful, has been able to get out from under it. And the Bible says it's because of sin. And what Jesus' resurrection shows, the reason Paul can say that he was raised because of our justification is that now death has been fulfilled as a penalty for sin. And therefore it has no more power. And therefore there's nothing to keep Jesus in the grave. Because his death did what it was meant to do, now he lives again. You can see how this works, right? If he was still in the grave, he'd be like a guy who was still in prison. The sentence would not be served yet. The penalty still has power, which means sin, the cause of the penalty, still has power. But if he's alive, it's a sign that once and for all, sin's penalty has been used up. It's no more a factor. He was raised because of our justification. Now, I want to give you an image that I think will help this logic sink in a little bit better. Isaiah 25 
is, is one of my favorite passages about death and God's plan to get rid of it. In Isaiah 25, verse 7 and 8, say this. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of the people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now notice this image that he gives us for death here, as a covering cast over the people, as a veil. I think that's partly because it is kind of a black cloud that hangs over us. We know we can't do anything to to get out from under it. It's coming for us, and we can't stop it. So it is kind of a black cloud, but it's also a ceiling. Death is a sort of ceiling, a black hole that gobbles up anything we might do with our lives to give our lives meaning, to justify ourselves. Woody Allen is one of my favorite and most, I think one of the most articulate people in describing this problem of death. He's obsessed with it from early in his career until this day. It's a constant theme for him. And he refuses to buy the argument that your work outlives you. He doesn't care about having a monument to him somewhere. He cares about not dying. What he says, this is a quote I've used before. I don't want to achieve immortality through my work, Woody Allen says. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. Even more to the point, he says elsewhere, the fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity, in other words, the thing that drives everything we do, is the constant struggle against annihilation and against death. It's absolutely stupefying in its terror, and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. I think that's what the image from Isaiah 25 is meant to communicate. This veil almost like a black hole, not a black cloud, that hangs over all of our lives and that gobbles up anything we might try to do to be good enough, to matter, to justify ourselves to the world around us and maybe even to God. Death mocks all of our attempts. So, for example, many of us, there's a sort of stereotype of parent, the parent who justifies their existence through the quality of their kids, right? They sort of let everything else go. They're going to give themselves to their children. And they want their children to, to come out in a particular way, hoping that their children will justify them. They'll justify the work, the sacrifice. They'll justify them in the eyes of the world, maybe even separate them from their peers who are less successful. But death gobbles up the best of children. And 100 years from now, we'll be dead and so will our kids. 150 years from now, at best, we'll be forgotten and so will our kids. Death gobbles up that attempt to give your life some sense of meaning and purpose. Many of us do it, look for it through our work, right? It's one of the classic reasons that you work. You're driven to make a difference. You're also driven, in a sense, to justify yourself. And for many, for many of you in the academic world, it, it looks like publication, for example. What you're after is publications. And you need them to graduate sometimes. You need them to get tenure. You need them to to win a place for yourself in your field that people will notice and recognize. But imagine you find out one day that you got published in exactly the journal or exactly the press that you wanted to get published in, and that same day you get told that you have cancer and it's in stage four and you've got two months to live. Which one of those pieces of news do you think is going to define your day? It's the fact that you're going to die, right? 
The only thing that keeps us from recognizing death is as certain for each of us, whether it's two months from now or 80 years from now, is that we just put it off. We just put it out of our minds. But ultimately, our lives at best are a breath. And we are no less certain to die than the person with stage four cancer who's got two months left. And if what you're looking for is some sort of justification out of your work, then death gobbles it up and leaves you unjustified. That's why death is described as a veil, a ceiling on how meaningful anything about our lives can be. But Isaiah 25 promises that on his holy mountain, the mountain where Jesus died, God will swallow up that which swallows up everything else. You can imagine, because of the way death works, why Jesus' followers were so upset when he died. Because what they would have thought is that Jesus himself has been swallowed up. Jesus can't justify us. He died just like everybody else. But Jesus rose again. By rising again, what Jesus shows is that he, his life and his death, was the accomplishment that death itself could not overcome. That by it, he swallows up that which swallows up everything else. And that by it, he has won the justification that he gives to us as a gift when we trust in him. The the point of Jesus' resurrection is that we can trust that we can be justified by something that death can't wipe out, something that comes to us as a gift. Now, the third layer I want to point to only briefly this morning is what the resurrection promises us. It was possible... Because Jesus did everything that was necessary to rob death of its power over us. The sentence has been paid. The 20 years in prison, to use that analogy, are up and we're free and we're justified in the eyes of the one who made us and to whom we owe everything. So now here's the promise of that resurrection. To return to the gobstopper analogy, at this layer we've reached the core. This is why the exaltation of the servant why the resurrection of Jesus is good news. That, and, and, and we're going we're gonna to spend some time chewing on this for the next several weeks. Because from this place in Isaiah through the end of the book, Isaiah is unpacking the beautiful world that is possible because the servant has been exalted. We're going to follow him, follow his steps, unpack it and layer by layer. For now, I just want to point you to the fact that Jesus' death has accomplished this, has brought in, has inaugurated this new world. It's in one sentence, not even a full sentence. It's back in verse 10. You could read right over it and not even get it. The same place where we're told that he would prolong his days, we're told that the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, that sounds simple enough, right? What his perfect death and triumphant resurrection have made possible is that the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In this phrase, as simple as it is, in this phrase is an ocean of goodness that stretches on for all of eternity that is as specific as each one of you and your lives, your needs, and is as broad as the universe itself. What this phrase means is that Jesus, the servant, has become by his resurrection the sort of administrator over all the things God has planned to remake the world free of the presence of sin and death. Jesus is the one who's responsible for making it happen. 
and in his hands, the will of the Lord, every promise the Bible contains, will prosper because he lives. That's the point. The resurrection is a promise that all of God's purposes for those who trust in him are secure, that they are bought and paid for once and for all. I said already we're going to spend the next several weeks unpacking what this will of God actually is. His plans for a new and beautiful and everlasting creation. We're going to spend, in other words, the next several weeks unpacking what the death of Christ has purchased for us. This morning, to put a cap on our celebration, or maybe that's a bad image, to, to fire up our celebration of Jesus and what his resurrection has accomplished, I just want to point you to it. And to the fact that his resurrection proves what God has in store for us is paid for already and it's coming and there's nothing that can stop it. God has promised, even in Isaiah, even in Isaiah alone, what he's promised is to wipe away every tear. We read that a minute ago, Isaiah 25. He's promised to make a world where the sound of weeping will be heard no more. That's Isaiah 65. He's promised that the servant will carry our sorrows as his own in chapter 53. He's promised that we're not going to be defined anymore by the shame of our youth, by the wrongs that we've done against other and ultimately against him. That's chapter 54. We will not not be defined anymore by our abandonment of him, but by the covenant of peace that he makes with us to, to secure us to himself once and for all. That's chapter 54. He's promised to make a new identity for us, to change our name, chapter 62 says, from those who are forsaken, from desolate to my delight is in her. He's promised satisfaction, true satisfaction, in place of the dissatisfaction that we all know, the disappointment that each of us has tasted. In place of that, chapter 55 promises that we will be truly satisfied if we come to him, that all who are thirsty, no matter how guilty, no matter how far flung you come from, if you are thirsty, come to him and you will be satisfied. That's the promise of chapter 55. He's promised nothing short of a new heaven and a new earth a future that's not limited by the failures of the past, that's not threatened by the prospect of death, a world of joy and hope and peace with God and with each other. It, it's imagery that is beautiful. And we're going to unpack it in the weeks to come. But the point here is that the resurrection shows the price for this future, for freedom from your past and hope for your future has been paid once and for all. We receive it now as an inheritance and not a set of instructions. Now, if Christ were still dead, there is a terrifying ceiling on top of what he could offer us. If he were still in the grave, then at worst, maybe all his death is for us is a brave heart kind of death, which inspires us to try to be better, to try to give our all for, for God, just like Jesus did. If he's still dead, his death could be a reason to make a monument to him on the town square and maybe nothing more. If he's still dead at best, his death could be something like a down payment, like a layaway program where he's paid for part of what's necessary to get us out from under death, but he needs us to make up the balance. If that were true, if he was still in the grave, at best, there's part of our debt that we're still left trying to pay. And we won't know until the end of our lives whether or not it's been good enough. If Jesus was in the grave, that's the best we can hope for. But because he's not in the grave, because he is alive, we have the promise through his resurrection 
that all of God's promises come to us as an inheritance that we can't mess up. It's a trust fund that is fully developed and waiting only for the day that he has appointed when we shall inherit his reward that has now become ours through faith in him. In other words, I love the way Paul puts it. Promise of the resurrection, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, is that all the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus is alive, it changes everything. Friends, he is alive. So trust in him. Father, give us the faith that we lack. Each of us, no matter how long we have been believers, does not have the faith that we need or that we want. And so our prayer to you this week, every week, is that you would give us the confidence that what your word tells us is true. That it is worthy of all of our devotion. That it can carry the weight of our lives. That if we hang ourselves onto you, we will not be dropped. Give us the joy that has been won for us by Jesus' victory over the grave. Help us to taste it this morning. To taste it as surely as we taste delicious food to be fired up by it, to live in a way that's foolish in the eyes of the world. We want the exaltation of Jesus. We want the promise that we are one with him and therefore can never die. And we want to believe it. So help us, Father, we pray, to trust in Christ alone. In his name.